0: Father, thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to study your word and to, uh, to stand here. <sighs> it was uh, one of my, uh, my last Sundays, and so um, I thank you for the opportunity to do this and to, uh, to be able to have this privilege. And so I just pray, God, you would guide us this morning uh, as we study and learn about you, Jesus, because ultimately it is all about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, good, good grief. I've already started. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen. That's not in my notes. Tears. No, not there. All right. Well, having, um, having four teenagers at home, uh, if, you're, if you're new with us, by the way, my name is Chris. I'm a pastor here, but I have, I have four teens, uh, two 18-year-olds, a 16-year-old, and a 13-year-old. I also have other teens that I've pretty much adopted that, that live at my house as well. And so it's, uh, it's pretty much a packed house all, all the time. But one of the interesting things about having teenagers, if you have them, you know what I'm talking about, or I've had them, is that just watching trends, how things kinda pick up and become popular and, and then disappear and come back and all those things. Very interesting. One of those is is music, taste in music. I've got kids in my house that love listening to like 80s, 90s music which I thought, like, what just happened there? Like, I mean, let's be honest, it's better, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, but, you know, it's cool, it's vintage. That's always a new phrase there, right? It's vintage, so it's pretty cool. One of my daughter's uh, first concerts recently, her first concert was to go to Lucas Oil Stadium and, and watch Guns N' Roses. I was like, what? It just happened in my house. Um, she's also the one that woke up from Wisdom Teeth a few weeks ago singing Inter Sandman. I'm like, what are you singing? She's like, they play it at work. She also called her doctor a goblin, which was not very nice of Sophia. She, they say the weirdest things that have to come out of wisdom teeth, right? And she kind of leans over to me and she goes, he looks like a goblin. I'm like, he's right there, Sophia. I'm like, and he's laughing, of course, because they say some of the craziest things. But anyway, but like, like music, um, cars, clothing, styles, movies, you know they seem to come back in, in, uh, in favor here and there. Um, matter of fact, I think I saw a preview the other day watching... Uh, watching my, uh, some of the Dodger games there. I think I saw a preview of another um, Halloween movie, which is like, how many more of these do I need to have? Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, I think, is, is 80, still running from Michael Myers, who still looks like he's 30. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it, but it was very weird to see. you know, Happy Halloween, Michael. Um, anyway, the, uh, it's like we have no original ideas anymore, uh, except for language. I will give them that. Teenagers have their own language that is so unique. As a matter of fact... And, and Mick, I think I saw you a second ago, somewhere in here a minute ago. This is for you, okay? This is, this is, and Reba, this is for you. I, I saw this Oklahoma Zillow post uh, regarding a, um, of, uh, selling a house, apparently posted by a 20-year-old realtor. Here's what they said at the bottom. Tired of walking into houses and it being straight dog water? Say less, my guy. This house be bussin' bussin'. No cap. Walk in the door and be prepared to yell, shee. It's like literary post. I'm going like, yeah, this is a 20-year-old realtor here. This is how they're selling, man. is how they're doing it these days, right? Um, man. So I got a kick out of that one. I'm like, man, they do have original language. That's for sure. I'll give them that. Now I want to vintage on that one. Anyway, when I think of vintage thinking about old things coming back around, things becoming similar. I think of the, the ministry and life of, of Jesus, okay? So, and Jesus' take on this world, uh, as you read through the Bible, as you go from Old Testament all the way to the very end of the book, when you get to the end of the book, you find this thing called a new earth. It, it is, the, is the time where Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna renew, make a new earth out of this one, okay? Um, and he does that now, right? He does that now with people. When people come to him, he makes them new. If anybody is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, right? All things pass away, you know, things become new. And so this is his kind of his work. He's always working and restoring, putting things back. And if you think the life of Jesus, he was always doing that, right? He was always uh, taking things and making them better in many ways, right? He made uh, raging seas into calm seas. He made sickness into health. Um, He would turn people's lives upside down that came into contact with him. Uh, think of just a sample of people, the Samaritan woman in John 4, the, the Roman centurion that Jesus reached out to, the Mary Magdalene, Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little man, the wee little man was he. Um, I can never say his name without that phrase coming out of me afterwards, sorry. The, uh, if you're like, who is that, don't worry about it, no big deal. But listen, this is what Jesus said, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and he give his life a ransom for many. He came to serve. He came to serve people. He came to change people. And Jesus does the same work today. He does the same work in the lives of people. He serves them by changing them, giving them a new heart, making them new, as St. Corinthians 5 states. And then, here's, here's how this works. Then when we, we, we come to him and he works in us, starts to change us, he actually then wants to use us in the lives of others as an instrument of his grace, Right? To, to be an agent of change in their life. It's a, it's a very unique opportunity that we have. Um, we, we are to help to do the same to others that we come in contact with. So Jesus is changing you so that you can be used in the lives of others to help them change for good. And nothing is more enjoyable than being used by Jesus in the lives of other people for their good. Right? That is, is a tremendous privilege. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, You're an instrument of change for the lives of people around you for good. So, breaking news, right? The Christian life isn't about you. (laughs) It isn't even about your own little personal relationship with Jesus in quiet, private places, which is perfect and good and great, and your closet and all that stuff, great. Prayer time, good. But Christianity is so much more than that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. It involves you and the lives of people around you, right? That's what Jesus wants to use you for. You're saved to serve. You're saved to reach others. You're saved to make much of Jesus in the world through your impact upon the lives of others for good. And I think the problem is that many times Christians don't see themselves as ministers, right? It's usually the person that's staying here or who've made it a profession who are the, the ministers. But really, all of us are that. Matter of fact. For most Christians, many times, we're glad consumers rather than committed family members of the of the of Christ. Right? A church is more likely an event that we attend or an organization we belong to rather than a calling that shapes our entire lives. Right? You're not called to be a cul-de-sac of grace. You're called to be a conduit of grace. Right? It's to pass through you and have an impact on the lives of others. Jesus is working on you to impact the lives of others. It's not just about you. It's wonderful. Experience change and growth. Fantastic. That's a good thing. But he wants to use that so you can be used in the lives of others. Okay? That's that conduit idea. Not a cul-de-sac. Conduit of grace. And I love how uh, Paul Tripp put it this way. He's a a writer, author. He said, life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's a pretty good life right there, right? Um, But he said, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than beautiful gardens and nice vacations and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity transporting them into his kingdom and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. Isn't that fantastic? He he wants you to be a part of that. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Let's, Let's make sure we get that straight. He doesn't need us, but he wants to use us in the lives of other people. So Paul loves these Galatians he's writing to. He really does. Now, he says some hard things. He gets a little bit upset at them. We'll talk about that too. But he loves them. And he wants to see them shake this kind of, this false gospel that they have started to embrace and believe, uh, that basically, as I've said this to you before, it's kind of the idea of Jesus plus something else equals everything, right? Jesus is good. We still like Jesus. Yes, we do. We like Jesus. How about you, right? There was still all about that, but you need to add something to Jesus, right? We got, well, oh, yeah, that's good, but we also need this. And what Paul is writing, going like, no, no, you don't need anything else. There's nice things to have. But you don't need anything else but Jesus. They were adding on to Him um, to be loved and accepted by God, right? If you really want to go varsity here, if you want to be a varsity Christian, to get out of the JV area, you need to add something to Jesus to get up to that movement, right? That's kind of what's what's going on. If you want to be, you know, not just a Christian, but a you know Christian Christian, you know, who's bussing bussing. I don't even know if I use that. My teenager is going to kill me for saying that. Um, I don't even know if I use that phrase right. But you know, you know, Christian Christian. So Paul is is kind of. You know, got into their kitchen a little bit here. He's taken them to the theological woodshed. We've seen this through Galatians, right? He's kind of gone back to some theology. Um, a lot of times repeating what sounds like the same thing. Sometimes you, if you notice this in studying Galatians. It's like, I think he's already said that. <laughs> he keeps going back again and again and again. But he has he's done that. Um, again, he's walked through the Old Testament. He's argued with them and pointed them to, to Jesus from there. He's tried to get them to see that it has always and will always be about Jesus and how his grace transforms us from consumers into servants. So, so Paul steps out of the maybe the theological clouds here, climbs down the uh, theological ivory tower and kind of steps into their kitchen here. Gets, gets a little personal with them, gets close. Gets down on one knee, as it were, I imagine, almost because they're acting like toddlers in some ways. He kind of gets down on one knee, looks them in the eye, and says, you need to grow up, <laughs> okay? It's time to grow up here. Um, and you know, God wants to use you in the lives of other people. And so he's doing that, pleading with them to, to come back to Jesus and start living for him by serving others instead of just serving themselves. And in doing so, what we find through this text is an excellent template of what it looks like um, to help serve and love people. And, and it's kind of four things he lays out here, and I'll give them to you, and then we'll, we'll dissect each one of those Uh, The first one is remember the God of grace and beware of religion. That's something he has said over and over, but we're going to revisit that one because he says it again. Number two, be involved and speak truth. Be involved in people's lives, speak truth to them. Uh, Number three, recognize evidences of grace and rebuke when necessary. And then number four, watch watch your motives and be ready to suffer. Okay, number one, remember the God of grace and beware of religion. So if you're going to be an instrument of change in people's lives, then you have to keep God and his grace on repeat. You know, it's like that broken record just kind of keeps coming back again and again. He does it again for them, and we're doing it again this morning, right? No matter how far you travel in your Christian journey, you, never, you must never forget where you came from. Right? There's an old song Stephen Curtis Chapman used to sing, right? Remember your chains, right? You remember where you came from uh, in that way. Never forget that. This is something Paul constantly went back to. If you've ever read the New Testament, you ever read the book of Acts, or you've read any of the letters that Paul has written, you'll notice a constant theme that he always seems to go back to, yeah, this was me <laughs> before Jesus, right? In the book of Acts, every time he got in front of a judge or somebody who was really important and they're accusing him of something, what did he do? He told his story again. Hey, I was on that Damascus Road. I got blinded. I met Jesus. Like, this is why I'm here. Like, he, would, he always revisits this. It goes back to remembering what God did in his life. So look what he says, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Okay, let's take this apart here. Paul reflects upon their conversion to Jesus, which Paul knew very well. All right, he knew this. If you go back to Acts, you'll find some of this. Um, he knew this well before they, before the, how they came to Jesus. Remember one time they tried to kill him, stoned him, dragged him out of the city. He went back in, preached the gospel. A church was planted the whole story there, but it's interesting, the word that he uses, I'm going to use a little Greek here for you, don't get too afraid, it's all right, it's, it's, it's a word here, because it's important, sometimes Greek uses, uses different words, and our English uses the same word, means different things, the word know here, they did not know God, is a, is a Greek word called oida, okay, oida, just stick with me for a second, and what, what that means is they didn't have any mental knowledge of God, okay, Mental knowledge. And we'll talk about it in a minute. He's going to change that word in a minute. He's going to use a different Greek word for no, But let's just stick with this one for now. He says they didn't have any mental knowledge of God. They didn't know the facts. <laughs> they didn't know the facts. They were, they were ignorant of the reality of the God of the Bible. When, when Paul came into the city and preached the gospel to them, they were like, we had no idea. Matter of fact, remember when he showed up, they thought they thought him and Barnabas were Greek gods, you know? They were doing miracles. They were like, the Greek gods have come to visit us. But they had no idea um, who... Uh, who the God of the Bible really was. So as a result of not knowing anything about Jesus, Paul says the result of your condition was that you were enslaved. And it wasn't just their, their sin that they were enslaved to. It says here they were enslaved to these so-called kind of gods. They were not gods at all. That these gods, in quotes here, they served were not really gods at all. That's why Scripture makes a big deal about, throughout the Bible, you'll see this quite often, describing the God of the Bible as the living God and true God, okay? Living and true God. That's repeated. Go to Isaiah. You'll see that over and over and over again. Hebrews mentions that as well. It's, it's a living God. And so he, he, this is why Scripture continually does this. All other gods are honestly dead gods. I hate to break it to you, but that's the reality of it, according to Scripture. They don't actually exist. Listen, Isaiah 45, 21 to 22. Declare... And present your case and let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. No, that's not culturally palatable these days. But there is no other God. (laughs) They don't exist. They may have names of people given to them, but they don't actually exist. So, And, and understand this. Before you think these, uh, these the people are foolish for worshiping other gods, uh, especially those maybe made of, we think of wood and stone and kind of archaic in that way, realize that there are irreligious gods as well. Because gods aren't real, but there are, there are fake ones here. There is, in our culture, a god of money, a god of fame, a god of pleasure, a god of power. They're all powerful yet non-existent gods. So I ask the question, like, how are they powerful <laughs> if they're non-existent? Because they are powerful, right? You ever have somebody swayed by money when, God, when their God is money and how that rules their life? Yeah, you see the power over it. You're like, but it's not real. It's not really a God. How is it they have power? It's because your heart deifies those objects, it deifies them. Your heart puts them in the position that God should take in your heart, and so therefore they become like gods. Does that make sense? That's, that's what he's explaining here, why they were, there are no other, other gods. You have to realize how this works. If you don't love and worship Jesus as God, then you will love and worship some other god. I'll put that in quotes. You'll deify something, because you have to. You must have a god. Because you were built for the god of the Bible. You were built for the god of the universe. And if you, if you, if you don't go after him, you will make a substitute, right? Gollum mentioned in Lord of the Rings, you will have another precious, right? It will be something else that you will gravitate towards. And so if you deify and serve the things of this world, which are not truly God's, but treat it as if they were, you will become slaves to them, is what Paul is saying. As you serve them in hopes of finding uh, redemption, joy, a good standing, the good life, whatever it may be, as you pursue those things, they will enslave you and try to pursue them. So any effort to redeem, redeem oneself from sin without Christ, to find life apart from Jesus always results in setting up some other savior god instead, which we then must placate. We must serve. We must worship. We must sacrifice, right? For them. We must give our time, talent and treasure to these gods in order to achieve what they promise, right? It's a works-based every other religion is a works-based, irreligious or religious religion. It's all works-based. I've got, I got to put in my time. i got to give my commitment. i got to sacrifice my time, my family, my money, whatever it is, so that I can achieve what this God is promising to me. And if we can't, if we can't placate these gods, you know what happens? We fall into despair. We fall into anxiety. We fall into fear. If anything but Jesus is a requirement to, to be worthy of God, that, that thing will become a slave master and will rob us of life itself. So look at verse 9. But now... You've come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? All right, here you go. Paul changes words now. I told you before, when they first, uh, Paul first came in the city, they didn't know oida, God, mental knowledge of God. Now he says, you have come to know God, totally different Greek word. I know English exactly the same. So if you want to write this in there, you're, you can do that, by the way. You can write in your Bible. It's not... It's not wrong, <laughs> if you want to. But it's a different word for know. This word know is gnosko. You're like, what does that mean? It's intimate knowledge, right? It's intimate knowledge. You know, you, you can know people in different ways, right? I can know someone, factual information about them. I really don't know them personally, but I know about them. But then you're like, my spouse, I know them, right? There's a much more, I, I, know, I know them personally. There's a much more intimate relationship. The Greek uses two different words. So when Paul first came into the city, they didn't mentally know anything about God. They didn't know the facts, now that they've come to know God, they don't just know the facts. They know him intimately. You see, there's a personal relationship. That's what he's mentioning here. It's a different word. So this is experiential knowledge. There's between reading a book on how to fix a car, which I do in my spare time all the time. Um, that's a joke, by the way. Uh, actually, having, or actually having a mechanic do it for you and show you how to do it, okay? Uh, that's a whole different knowledge, right? One's book knowledge, one's experiential knowledge. That's the difference in these two. So a Christian is someone who, has, who knows God, doesn't just know about him, not just facts, but knows him personally. And Paul adds something here too uh, to, their, to the statement, if you notice this, to keep kind of their pride low, humility high. The truth of the matter is, Paul says, uh, just so you understand, you actually technically didn't come to know God. Rather, God reached out to know you. <laughs> that's, that's how this works. Um, God, like a father, came to an orphanage selected you out as a son or a daughter, and you grew up calling him dad, right? And it was his initiative, not yours. That, that's what he's getting to right here. This is the essence of grace, that God reached out to us, not that we reached out to him first. Don't forget, you're part of the family, not because you thought it was a good idea, you know? Well, I'm a Christian because that, that was a good idea I had one day. I'm like, yeah, I should probably, I should probably go all in on Jesus. That's, that's a good idea. It's like, okay, that's a, that is a good idea. But <laughs> what, what the Bible is saying here is that actually it was a better idea by God first, Right, He came after you, and that's what he's talking about. So don't forget, you're, you're part of the family not because it was a good idea, but because God thought it was a good idea. We love because he first what? Loved us. Okay, That's what Paul's getting to. So Paul says, in light of this truth, in light of this amazing grace that flooded your life, you didn't know anything about God, and now you've come to personally know God because of God's initiative, he says, how in the world can you go back to those dead gods that don't even exist that tortured you and enslaved you and beat you up and caused you to be miserable. Why do you go back to them? And I love how he describes them here. He calls them first, he calls them weak. And that's the idea of they're unimpressive is the idea. They're sick. Um, they're also worthless, he says, which is the idea of they are oppressive and miserable. Everything in this life that you put stock in other than Jesus in the end is unimpressive sickly, feeble, and will leave you oppressed and miserable. That, that's what he's describing. Now, we don't believe this. Humanity doesn't believe these, this word, this phrase, but this is the truth. Why has it become that way? And I've told you this many times, and I don't want you to forget this. No matter how nice and beautiful and valuable that person, that place, that thing, that dream, that idea, whatever it is that seems so wonderful, the reason that it cannot fulfill what it promises. It cannot deliver you. is because no one and nothing was ever meant or designed to carry the weight of your human soul other than God. Do you understand that? They can't carry the weight of your human soul. Your human soul is heavy. It's significant. And there's nothing created that can hold that and fulfill that. Only God of the universe, the God of the Bible, can do that. But notice what's enslaving them in, in, uh, back in verse 10. It's interesting. What's enslaving them now, this, is the, this happens in the church. This happens in Christianity, and maybe this has happened to you, or maybe it's currently happening to you. But they got enslaved again to what he basically calls religion, you know, days and dates and years. You're like, what's all that? It, it was religious rituals, you know, that they felt if they did those things, they're good, right? God gives them a stamp of approval. You're good to go. You followed that calendar. You kept those rules. You did those rituals. You said those prayers, right? You gave that money to the poor. You did those things. Okay, you're good. So they, they fell tra- uh, trapped in this. So before, before they came to, remember, know God, they didn't have any facts, they were enslaved to irreligion, right, in many ways. Sex, money, power, whatever it may be, that was what they were obsessed with. Now they've come to Christ, and now they, they're getting trapped by religion, morality, rules, rituals. Isn't that interesting? In the end, the, the religious person, who is, doesn't know Jesus, is as lost and enslaved as an irreligious person is. They're, they're not, neither one of them is, has better standing with God if they're apart from God, right? Um, why is that the case? Because both are avoiding Jesus as Savior. They're just using different means. Some are using religion. They're using church. They're using you know, rituals. They're using uh, sacrifice and service to, uh, to substitute for Jesus, to be good. And the other people are using other means to to be good in their own way of how they define good, right? They're just using different means, but they're both trying to avoid Jesus as Savior. And the danger for Christians is that when we come to Jesus, no matter how much of a, a younger son... We'll use that illustration of Jesus uses with the younger, older son, the prodigal son. Maybe familiar with that story. No matter how much of a prodigal you were when you came to Jesus... You know, I'm one of those up here. No matter how much of a prodigal you were, there is a great temptation once you get into Christianity to become the older brother. It is. It, j- it just happens. It, it, it's, a, it's a struggle. Like, it is a temptation to fall into legalism. Like, I know I'm right with God by grace, but, man, but if I just do these things, I'll be even more right, right? <laughs> I'll be even better. And we just fall trapped to that. And that's what's happening here in this, in this church in Galatia. Paul's saying that religion is really no better than irreligion in this, in this sense. And I fear we think that because a person maybe is religious, that they must be closer to God than someone who is not. But that's not the case. As a matter of fact, uh, religion might even be worse in some ways. And I think that's what Paul is so upset. It's really dangerous. That's why Paul is so afraid for the Galatians. This new slavery of, of religion would be worse than the, than the old because religion kind of blinds them to the reality of God. I don't need God, right? I'm good. I keep the rules. I'm all right. And it provides kind of a false hope. And so if you're going to be an agent of change in the world, you must beware of religion. That's what he's getting at. Everyone who becomes a Christian will begin to experience change in their lives. But many times they will exchange, sometimes can easily exchange one sin for another. All right, I'm not going to be immoral anymore now. All right, I'm, I've come to Jesus. But now you may, may become self-righteous. <laughs> One's not better than the other, just so you understand the eyes of God. And so when, that's, when this takes place, they won't really want to serve others, right? When you become self-righteous, you don't really want to serve others because why? yeah, they don't deserve it. I'm better than they are, right? Judgmentalism is a symptom of this self-righteousness. And the only way you will avoid this is by remembering the God of grace, right? Remembering where you came from. You must remember that you were dying out there apart from Jesus. He came and rescued you, placed you into his family. You didn't come to know God in that sense. He came to know you. So you, you can't look down at anybody, right? You can't look down at anybody. This is why every Sunday for the last six years and plus now, um, we've talked about Jesus, we talked about grace, we've gone back to the gospel, we you gone back. You gotta, we always gotta go back to it. Why? Because we forget it. <laughs> we forget it. John Newton, who I've shared with you uh, quite often here, read his biography this uh, past year or two. We've got one, uh, some in the bookstore there. Uh, Amazing Grace is the name of the biography. If you've sung the song Amazing Grace, he's the author of that. And uh, as a teen in his story, he actually uh, went and served as a as a sailor at sea uh, over in England, and became involved in the uh, in the, the inhumane African slave trade that was happening there at the time. In that in that story, as they would they would pick up slaves and, and trap them and capture them and, and put them on their boats, they would load them in, pack them like sardines, um, chain them below deck so they wouldn't commit suicide across when they were going across seas. Uh, line, line them up side by side, with as much as 600 in the bottom of a ship, just pile them in. Many of them would die on the, on the way over. But he was 23. His ship um, got caught in a massive storm, storm that he, he was sure that he, they were going under and he was going to die. At that point, he feared for his life. He cried out to God. Uh, he asked for forgiveness, and he was marvelously saved. And not wanting to forget, uh, ever to forget, he actually became a pastor and everything after that. Knowing ever to forget the depths of his sin from which he had been rescued by God's grace, he actually inscribed in his home above his mantle Deuteronomy fifteen fifteen. So he would see this every day. Here's what he, here's what that verse says: "You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Right? And he actually made those capitalized. You, <laughs> and that's why it's it's been you know he said towards the end of his life uh, when he ran into. Um, Different different people and had an impact upon people like William Wilberforce and other, that, other, those, other those guys. Uh, he was known to have said, even up to the day he died, the following phrase. He said this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's what we're getting at here. If you're going to have impact in people's lives, you need to remember that. You need to keep that stored and not in the back of your head, in the front of your head, right? It needs to be something you always remember because otherwise you'll never want to serve people. You never want to reach out to people, right? This moves you. This motivates you. Number two, uh, these, these, by the way, will go a lot faster than the first one. If you're worried about time. I'm not worried about time. I've only got two left, so hey, I'll go as long as I want. No, just kidding. Um, 4.12, uh, be involved and speak truth. Verse 12, brothers, I treat you. Become as I am. For I also have become as you are. Now, that's an interesting phrase. You're like, is that, that sounds a little, maybe a little arrogant. Like, what is he, what is he getting after here? Well, let, let's start with that last phrase first. Paul says he became like them. What in the world does that mean? Well, he, as a Jewish man, um, submitted himself to their, we would say, their, maybe their Greek world or their Greek culture as far as he could and still be loving and honoring Jesus in that capacity in order that there would be no barrier for the gospel. Some of that involved learning their language. Some of that involved learning their customs. And like just as a missionary would do, even today, Paul's saying that's basically what I did. I became like them. Now, he, he described this in detail back in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 19, he says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. In order to win Jews, right? So to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. That's a lot of, that sounds the same. What is he saying? He says, basically, the Jewish people had these rituals, they had these days, they had these ceremonies, they had these certain rules. If you wanted to be in this room, you had to wear this certain thing. He's like, yeah, I can do that. I don't need to. I'm not doing it to be right with God, but I'll do it so I can earn an audience, right? That's what he's saying. To the Jew, I became a Jew. Then he said to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. That's the piece he practiced when he went to Galatia, okay? Sometimes we use the word contextualization. Sometimes it's more of a modern phrase for this, or if you've been in missions work, you kind of understand that word. But basically, you're, you're getting into their culture, understanding how they think. You know, A perfect example, Paul goes to Athens in Acts 17, right? He studied their Gods and oh I have there's one here to an unknown God. He so he starts speaking to them about what they understood. Okay? That's what he means. That's what he did here in Galatians. He became like them in that way. Um, And so that that's what he was doing. So when Paul went into Galatia, he didn't just tell them, Hey, be like me and preach at them. He told them truth, yes. But he became like them in every way permissible by Jesus, okay? Bottom line, he got involved in their lives. He got down on their level, understood their culture, their practices, adopted some of their language, all for the sake of conveying a clear gospel presentation, not just in words, but in his life. You know, I wonder, eh, never mind, random thoughts by Chris, but I wonder if Paul was around today if he'd used the phrase, "bussin' bussin'." I don't know. Maybe he would, actually. He was a good good missionary. Uh, My kids are going to kill me for this one. All right. In doing so, he was, (laughs) sorry, random thought came to my head. Uh, In doing so, uh, he was showing them, this is so important. You say, why why would he do that? I mean, I understand that kind of so they understand what he's saying, but why is his life important? His life was important so they could see what it looked like to be a Christian in their culture. So when they repented and came to Jesus, this is what it looks like, right? He, He embodied kind of their world in some ways. Um, that's why we need Christians in every part of culture. We need Christians in every little subculture out there so that they can embody the life of Jesus and show people, like, not just words of, like, hey, pre-, you know, preach the gospel, come to Jesus, but, hey, when you do, this is, this is what it looks like to live in this same world I live in with you, but what it looks like to love Jesus in this world. So you're not going to be an agent of change in someone's life if you don't become part of their life, okay? You can't serve people from the ivory tower well, the only thing you can do from an ivory tower is, is yell words and drop supplies. But you, you really can't get involved in their life. But when you become part of their life, this shows that you really get the gospel. You say, how is that? Because you're not concerned anymore. What happens when you get involved in their life? You're, you're like, I'm in this for them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to love Jesus. You're not concerned anymore about your maybe reputation as a religious or astute person necessarily. You're concerned about the gospel. concerned about serving people We see this with Jesus. Think about his life. He lived among broken people, didn't he? I always think of it this way. He he didn't commute. You guys who commute to work would understand this. Um, He didn't commute from heaven to earth each day, you know? Show up at 8 a.m., get his work in, commute back out at 5 to heaven, come back the next morning at 8, right? No, he he stayed there, lived among us, right? He was, you know, Christmas is coming up here soon, right? He was Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us, right? He was God with us. And so... um, so this is, who, this is who he was. And you think about his life, um, he did this. He lived among the people. Um, he was asking questions. He went over to their houses that people wouldn't go to. He met with people that people wouldn't meet with. He, he, uh, he met needs of people. Man, he, he even went camping for three years with guys, right? Which I still haven't yet to implement in my life. That part of Jesus' ministry, right? Three years of living out in the, in the, the rocks and woods. I, I don't know. That's a tough one. I'm still trying to reach that point of service. Um, one day, maybe. Probably not. Um, notice in the text, there's another side to this, all right? Another side of the coin. You should live in such a way among them that you call them to become as you are. You see that? So there's two sides of that coin. Becoming like them doesn't mean compromising, okay? That doesn't, that's not what he's getting after here. It means you embody Jesus for them in their culture. When Paul says, become like me, which he would say often. He says it in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Philippians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1. He says this a lot to his, his, uh, the churches. What he's saying there is, is I'm not going to let you stay the way you are. And he's saying, I've come to embody the kind of life Jesus wants you to live when you come to him. This means, what, did, what does this mean? This means, this may, this may sound familiar. This means Paul embodied both grace and truth. Sound familiar? John chapter one, Jesus' ministry and life. He embodied both grace and truth. We should want people to become like us because we're following Jesus, okay, in, in our culture. It, it doesn't mean that we want everybody to become little mini-me's, right? And follow you means like, dress like you, act like you, have your preferences or whatever it may be. Uh, I know many of you would not want to probably wear a flowered shirt like I have on right now, which is totally cool. You don't have to be a mini-me, right? But you want people to actually follow you and be like you as you are like Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what he's going after. You say, And the question is, can you say that? Can you say that in the life of others around you, those, your co-workers and your family and the people that you're around? Can you say that? Hey, I want you to become like me as I am like Jesus. Hmm, that's a, that's a challenge, isn't it? In the... Um, the film, uh, As Good As It Gets, with Jack Nicholson—he in that as a character, he says to, uh, to Helen Hunt in that, in that movie, he said, uh, you, make me to wanna, you make me wanna be a better man. And like that, we should have, want that impact upon the lives of others. You make me wanna be like Jesus, because I see him in your life. Right, be it Christian or non-Christian that you're around, they should see that and want to implement that. Uh, I've also saw a Hallmark card that says, you make me wanna date a better person. We don't want that, all right? We don't want to have that. We want people like seeing your life and going like, "Yeah, no, I'm i, want, I want out. Nothing like you," right? So, what does this mean? This means you need to be in the world, but not of the world. Again, John 17 is what Jesus said, right? Be in the world, not of the world. Of the world, so they see Jesus in your life. Be full of grace and be full of truth. Number three, recognize evidences of grace and rebuke when necessary. All right? we can be uh, we can be pretty critical people, critical of ourselves and critical of others, um, always seeing the flaws in ourselves and others, right? This is kind of, you know, the glass half empty type thing. We, we have a habit of doing this. And while God calls us to speak truth, we who have been changed by, by grace should make every effort to recognize the grace of God at work in the lives of others around us. Um, there's a book called Humility in the bookstore. Fantastic. Uh, C.J. Mahaney wrote that one where he has a whole chapter on this. I always remember it. Recognizing the evidences of grace in people's lives. So good. So good. But anyway, we, we think about it. we. This becomes important um, as we serve others because many of the Christians around us, they don't always see the evidence of grace even in their own life. So if you're serving other Christians around you, understand that they don't always see the work of grace in their life, right? We're pretty critical of ourselves in many ways. And sometimes too much so. We can be like Christian Eeyores, you know? Woe is me and life is bad and I'm terrible and it's all falling apart, right? It's like you need like some other set of eyes to come along. We're like little kids, right? Who complain to mom and dad like, I'm not growing, I'm not getting taller. You're like, yeah, you are. It just didn't look like it from yesterday to today. But if you go up to that marking on the wall in our kitchen, <laughs> you'll see you have grown, right? So we need that in each other's lives. We need to recognize God's grace at work in the lives of each other because we don't always see that. So look what he says, verse 13. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And Though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't, you didn't scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So Paul goes back to their first meeting. They welcomed him with open arms, even though Paul basically says, I know, I know, I'm not easy on the eyes. I get it. <laughs> That's basically what he says. He apparently had some sort of physical limitation that made for maybe a very awkward gospel presentation i'm not sure we don't have a picture of this but he definitely had something going on physically and in ancient times without the benefit of good medicine or sterile bandages and other such things diseases were often often disfiguring right i mean they would they would carry on stench of be nauseating sometimes of some of these diseases and so we can deduce from uh, verse 15 here that uh, probably had something to do with his eyes is our guess um, and we, we also see in chapter 6, verse 11, here at the end of the book, that Paul had a practice of having his letters dictated. We think, again, because some kind of visual, maybe visual problem there, being able to write. He would always sign his name at the end kind of thing, that he wrote it. And eye disease was a common thing in ancient times. So interesting, interestingly, in that culture now, going back to Galatia, when he first got there, it's a Greek culture... Understanding in their world, such deformities or or, or things, ailments like that were seen as divine displeasure and rejection. They were on par with leprosy in the Jewish culture, right? You stay away from those people. They've been cursed by God type thing. Um, And so here Paul shows up, and in stark contrast, they didn't do that to him. He was a stark contrast to all the Greek philosophers and their robes and all that stuff that you think of. You think of Greek scholars. Um, He was nothing like that. This is testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit. Even before they came to Jesus, the Spirit of God working on them. They received him. They actually were able to listen to him. Um, They weren't predisposed to accept word from such a messenger, but they heard him out, maybe one eye closed. (laughs) You know, trying to take him, apparently wasn't good to look at. But they didn't mock or disdain him, at least not at first. Now they had a different change of mind when these religious people came in and changed their minds, but instead they received him as if he was, was an angel, meaning they, they received him. They, uh, they, they thought Paul, matter of fact, they thought he was a god at first, right? Um, the point Paul is making is that God's grace caused the Galatians to see grace. It's something we must practice if we're going to serve people around us. Sometimes when people aren't doing well, it's good to rehearse the evidences of grace in their story. Matter of fact, when I've done marriage counseling and couples come in, you know, usually they come in to see you. It's not because things are, hey, we're doing so well, we love to see you, right? That's usually not the case. It's usually a struggle. There's some friction. You know, there's some animosity maybe going on there. That things aren't going well. One of the very first homework assignment I give is always to say, hey, you know what? I want you to go back. I want you each to just sit down for an hour or two. And I want you to write out 50 evidences of grace in the life of your spouse. And whenever I get the phrase, the response back of 50? I don't know if I could do 50. I'm like, you need to do 100. Like, <laughs> you, need, you need to write some more, buddy. Um, it's, uh, it's usually the dude. Um, you know, you need to really look at this. But what does that do? It has a way of changing your perspective because we don't see, always sees the flaws, always sees the hurt and the pain, the things that are hurt and pain for us, and we, we lose fact, lose the sight of the fact that God's grace is at work in the lives of our spouse or people around us. And so we need to recognize those and see those. So verse 15, he says. Uh, what then, in light of all this, has um, what then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth. So these guys came to Jesus, and Paul says, Man, if if, if I'd have told you, hey look, my eyes are not good, but can you give me yours? <laughs> they would have said, Sure, here you go, you know, pop them out, give them to them. And that's what he said. They that's how much they, they felt loyal to him, how much they believed the message of the gospel. But now they basically shun Paul. It's like Paul goes straight to voicemail, you know? Every time he calls the Galatians, like, voicemail, yep. Yeah, he's on the block list now, can't get through. You know, they, they just, they want anything to do with him. Um, all because that some religious people showed up, blowing smoke, as it were, telling them, hey, you need Jesus plus something um, in your life. And Paul, Paul loves them too much to say, you know what, I'm just not going to call anymore. <laughs> he loves them too much. He's like, yeah. He steps in their kitchen, he rebukes them. So you must recognize evidences of grace, but at the same time, you must be willing to say the hard things sometimes, okay? That's all part of it, guys. I know Midwestern culture, we are nice people. You know, it's like, you just, you just don't want to ruffle too many feathers, you just want to, you know, the whole recognize evidences evidence of grace is like, yeah, right on, that's good. Tell people the hard thing? Uh, that's a little harder for me, right? Paul you got to do both. If you're going to love the people, you got to be able to do both. And based on your personality, you may have one easier than the other, right? But you need to do both. Um, Listen to how um, Proverbs puts it. Proverbs 27, 5, and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Getting the gospel allows you to confront people in love. It allows you to say the hard things at times, If people only feel warm fuzzies around you, right, and never a little bit of discomfort or maybe not a little bit offended at times by your words um, that you're graciously pointing out, by the way. I'm not saying be a jerk to people, okay? That's not what Paul is saying. But you do need to say the hard things in love at times. Uh, If you're not doing those things, you're probably hiding behind pride. I know that sounds maybe an oxymoron there, but it is usually. What is that? I just don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. What's the middle letter of pride? I, right? I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to make things difficult. So I'm not going to say anything, right? Uh, If you won't ever be an agent of change in people's lives, if you don't believe the gospel enough to say the hard things sometimes that need to be said. All right, number four, last one. Watch motives be ready to suffer. Uh, Motives are tricky, right? They're tricky things. Uh, We can easily show care for someone for selfish reasons, and that's what's happening here in, in the letter with these false teachers. They're showing love to the Galatians. The Galatians are receiving that love. I think it's his love. Is this love? I don't know why I just did that, but it's like love. You know, they're receiving the love, and, they, uh, and they're being all flattered about it and think it's the best thing, but the motives are totally wrong. Right? They're flattering them, and Paul calls them on the carpet for that. Verse 17, they make much of you, they say nice things to you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. So these people, the Galatians are looking up to, speak highly of them, but it's for selfish reasons. They, they, what? they want them to be zealous of them, so they butter them up, as it were. They flatter them. And the language that Paul uh, uses is the same language, by the way. This, this whole flattery language is the same language he'll use in other letters to refer to a kind of um, seducer. Right? Who wants to tear apart a marriage? Right? That, that's what he's saying. He's saying you need to watch out. for People who are flattering or doing, have the same motivation. Right? They want to exalt you, say a lot of nice things about you. And flattery, flattery can be very deadly. This is what he'll say in, in the book of Romans at the end of that book. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Contrast that now with the ministry of Paul. This is how he describes 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, for we never came with words of flattery. So that's very different, right? As you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have uh, made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you, While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses. God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, uh, each one of you, and encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the kind of ministry Paul wants us to have in the lives of others. And the goal of Paul's ministry, as he would state in 1 Timothy 1, was always love. That was his goal. Love may say some hard things. Love may... Recognize evidences of grace, but love is always going to be in what's the best interest of the other person, ultimately. But the goal of flattery is just the opposite. It's actually hate, right? They don't care about, these false teachers don't care about the Galatians. They only care about themselves. Uh, They need to have have people emotionally need them. They need their own converts, their own disciples to be wrapped up in them, adore them as it were, and only this can assure them that they are good and, and blessed and favored by God. We need to have these people affirm us. We also see this in the language. The NIV translates this, they are zealous to win you over. They're basically telling them what they want to hear. This is the opposite of what Paul is telling them, the truth. If you want to be an agent of change in people's lives, then love them enough for the sake of Jesus, not for the sake of your own reputation or the things you might get in return. Because that's really easy to do. Really easy to fall trapped to. Right? It is only then that you would truly love but recognize at the same time as you do this, it won't be easy, right? Look what he says, verse 19. My little children, for whom I'm again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul says he, uh, this process of trying to get them to believe the gospel, to repent of their pursuits of the world, of, of, of believing these lies and serving them and loving them, is, it's hard. He said it's like giving birth to a child. Painful, That's what I've been told. That's all I can say. Um, I mean, I mean, I remember I was, I was there for the birth of my kids. I know the first ones, you know, the twins. I mean, Sarah got a needle the size of my arm into her back, you know, and, like, C-section, and I saw things I never want to see again, right? All the insides were on the outside. I'm like, how is she still talking to me when all of her insides are out? Like, this is crazy. This is unbelievable, right? I want to pass out right now, which I almost did, um, which not, would not have been good as a, as a dad and husband at that point. But you get the idea. I was mean, it's painful, right? Caden this week, had, you know, spinal taps this week. And then, you know, a very long needle stuck into his back like five or six times because they couldn't get the right spot, right? I mean, it, it hurts, right? It's pain. Uh, and that's what Paul's saying. It's like it's, it's, it's painful serving you. <laughs> it's painful loving you. And that's the way ministry is, is what he says. Um, and he wants them to grow up, right? He, he loves them. He wants to see them grow up. and It's going to involve some, some pain in that, all right? So ladies, if you're pregnant, you understand this, right? You get to a point You're like I just just want to have the baby, right? I mean, I'm just like I'm done with this. I've gone long enough. Plenty of time. Let's do this thing, right? Start praying for delivery to happen the next minute because you feel so uncomfortable, right? You're tired of sleeping. (laughs) We always called Sarah tired of sleeping with your second husband. It was this big body pillow that she would sleep with and be like, "All right, well, good night." You know, (laughs) hug your pillow, and uh, you know, or or tired of those kind of things. You feel like a UFC match is happening in your stomach and your abdomen. You tell your husband to speed it up when, when, when speed bumps come, right? Just to kind of induce labor. You know how this goes. I've been there kind of thing. You just want it to happen, right? And even when they're grown up and they're about to leave for college, you, you deep down, you, just, you want them to develop. You want them to grow up. You want them to mature. You want them to be able to stand on their own. And that's the way we are to feel about others. We want to see them born. We want to see them grow up. We want to see them mature. We want to see them stand on their own. And that's the same desire you may have for your children is the same desire we should have in the lives of other people. We want to see them grow. And you know what? if you've ever been a parent of any kid of any age, it's hard, right? Doesn't matter what age they are. Even when they're adults, it's still hard. (laughs) It's a hard thing. And so that's the way we should feel, though, um, for each other. We should long deeply for Jesus to be formed in each other and to see each other grow. And so Paul's image tells us that any Christian who hopes to see another person come to Christ and want to see Christians become more like Christ should expect a lot of struggle, a lot of pain, and some hurt. I know that's not what you want to sign up for, but that's kind of how it works. We should expect at times to be misunderstood. We should expect at times to be disappointed. Yeah, we should expect at times to be drained emotionally. Right? It's hard serving people. Um, and this is again, what Jesus said: and we should expect this. Luke nine twenty three: If anyone would come after me, he would deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's hard, guys. <laughs> that's hard. And God uses that suffering, by the way not just in the lives of the people we serve, but you know he uses it? He uses it in our lives too, to help us grow. Look back at verse 13. It seems to to indicate from the passage in verse 13 that Paul's intention was actually not to come to Galatia at first, um, it, we don't know what was going on there. It seems, seems to, the language seems to indicate there was this eye disease causing him to take a detour. I don't know if there was like a specialist doctor in Galatia or something he was going to go see. I, we don't know the backstory. But some, he's indicating somehow he didn't intend on going there, but the suffering he was facing detoured him to go. Gospel was preached, churches were planted, people's lives were changed. In God's providence, his illness, caused the gospel to be preached. You understand how that works, right? God allows suffering, brings difficulty. For his glory, our good, and the good of others. It's all mingled in that stuff. It's hard to see when you're in the middle of it, but it's all mingled in there. His glory, our good, and their good. Most of us can provide personal illustrations of how God worked in our lives and the lives of those around us, used maybe our own mistakes, maybe used disasters or troubles or thwarted plans that we thought we had that got changed and ended up over here instead and how God used that to serve others. Um, Expect suffering it is what will help, um, help make you a better instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And realize that there's no other way around it, by the way. I know some will be like, well, if, that's, if it's going to hurt, it's going to be a problem. I tried to serve people. I'm out. You know, deuces up. Peace out. I'm out, man. No way. I don't want it. Not going to have anything to do with it. I've, I've been hurt too much. Realize that there's even more pain if you choose that route. I've shared this with you before, and I do have to share C.S. Lewis because he says this so well. But it is. If you choose not to serve people, like I'm hurt too much, I'm just gonna stay away from people, I'm not gonna serve, understand that there's a great disaster that happens on the other side of that too. Listen to how he puts it. To love it all is to be vulnerable. I underline that bad boy. That, that's true. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, You must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, this is so good, so true, safe, it's safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken anymore. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. What does that mean? You'll become callous. You'll become cold. You were never meant to isolate yourself. I know relationships are hard. We talk about a theme. Justin's talked about a theme. When it hits his theme, when he starts preaching here on a regular basis and takes over his lead pastor role, grow through relationships, grow through relationships. Perfect. It's going to be hard. It's hard. But I, there's no other option. Because the other option is worse, right? To, 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 to back away, become cold, become callous, not engage, pull yourself away. It's just to become cold and callous and you're just shrivel up. Your life just shrivels up. Listen, the ultimate means of change when we talk about all of this is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was God incarnate. I told you this before. He didn't commute here. He didn't send emails to us. He didn't give us a phone call or text message. He came to earth himself. He engaged with us himself. He didn't dispatch an angel. He didn't dispatch anybody else. He came himself. He walked this earth in constant communion with the God of grace. He fought religious people and their false gospels tooth and nail, pulled no punches when it came to telling the truth. Read Matthew 23. But he was full of grace and truth. He recognized the work of grace in his followers, even though they were a bunch of numbskulls at times. Let's be honest, right? They they, they left him at times. They said dumb things at times. And yet he also recognized the spirit of God's work in their life over and over again. He even entrusted them, by the way, with the gospel, didn't he? to take it to the ends of the earth to show how the confidence in God's grace in their life he was. And as a suffering servant, as Isaiah would describe him, he would go to a cross, he would go silent as a lamb before its shears. And when he was reviled, Peter would tell us he was, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And as a result, in order to change humanity, to redeem humanity, he suffered, guys, more than any of us will ever suffer in the history of the world. He was, as Isaiah called, a man of sorrows, acquainted with what? Grief, present tense, always suffering, always on the verge of tears all of his life. He risked it all to make you his and to change you from the inside out and then use you in the lives of others, even though it's hard. Don't be a cul-de-sac of grace. Don't receive grace from God and just keep it to yourself. Be a conduit of grace, okay? The mercy that you've experienced, this is how the gospel works in the lives of a Christian, all right? The mercy you've experienced from, from God, that you've been shown by God, let that flow through you so you're merciful to others. The grace that you've received from God, let that flow through you so you can be gracious to others. The patience you've received from God, let that flow through you so you can be patient with others. You see how this works? This is how the gospel works, guys. This is why we go back to it again and again and again. You've got to go back to it. Because that's where change happens in your soul and that's where you can be changing the lives of others. And that, that zeal, that burden, that, that, um, that, that weight that God bore for you, the suffering he went through on your behalf so that you could be made whole, so that you could be his, let that flow through you too. And let that go into the lives of others and go like, well, if he suffered, I can suffer too. If he suffered to love me, and he did, I can suffer a little bit of loving others. You see how that works? That's how the gospel works in lives of us. That's why again I'll end with Mark 10:45. The Son of Man Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for me. That's the call upon your lives. That's the call upon my life. To serve people. To love them even though it's hard. right? So as we go to communion that's what I want you to think about. Right? If you're a follower of Christ the bread, juice and those little cups there. If you didn't get one there's some at the back table back there. We take communion to remember this very thing. To remember whatever that is for you. Maybe today you need to remember the grace that you've received. Maybe you remember the mercy, maybe the patience. Maybe you remember the suffering that Jesus took for you so that you can be long-suffering and serve others, right? Whatever it is about where, where there's a barrier there, where that blockade stops, the conduit stops, <laughs> it doesn't seem to go in you and out of you to other people, you need to back-trail that bad boy, right? Go back up the pipeline and go look like, what am I missing? What have I, what have I forgotten uh, I'm not, I don't want to suffer people oh I forgot how much you need to suffer for me you see I'm not very patient with people I need to go back and understand the patience that God has with me go back up the pipeline right go back to the gospel that's what we do in communion time take a moment to reflect I'll stop talking um, and let you have some time with God and then we'll take that we do it in remembrance of him there's bread there's juice remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us in remembrance of him We're, uh, when you're ready you may take that if you're not a Christian it's not for you I would be happy to talk to you more about all of this. If it's all very confusing to you and you have a lot of questions, we'd love to answer a lot of questions. So see us in the back here uh, afterwards. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity uh, to preach the gospel and to walk through what you've done for us. It is so beautiful and so awesome and a place that we have to constantly go back to over and over. That's what I love about Galatians because it's like the gospel repeat every single week we get here. Um, He goes back to it because we need it, God. If if we're gonna serve and love people, if we're gonna do what you've called us to do, if we're gonna make the sacrifices and take those risks, we gotta remember what you've done for us. Otherwise, we won't wanna do it. We won't be motivated to do it. Or if we do do it, we do it out of sheer guilt. God, we wanna do it empowered by grace. And we only do that by going back to the gospel. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.